0: I mentioned last night that the day of Pentecost that we read about in chapter 2 of this book would have been a day to have been part of. The apostles receiving the Spirit, the message of salvation being presented, people being baptized, every body of water in Jerusalem filled with people who are being buried with Jesus, And yet we know that that did not make Satan rest. In fact, it seems he kind of went into overdrive a bit there. As those who claimed religion began to persecute these new followers of Jesus Christ. And as we noted in chapter 8 last night, as they persecuted, the people scattered, but they're taking the gospel with them everywhere, which in turn caused some to persecute even more. And one man who we see is a man by the name of Saul. And I want to just notice a couple of verses concerning Saul as we make our way into tonight's study. The first one is in verse 3 of chapter 8. It says, But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. You ever just pondered that verse a while? Thought about what Luke rather nonchalantly is telling us about this Saul? Here is a man who is so committed to Judaism, who in his zeal and his love for what he thinks is the truth, is bringing dishonor, or at least tempting to, to this new band of followers and the word that Luke chooses is a powerful word ravaging the church. We turn the page or so in our Bibles and we look at chapter 9 and in verse 1 it says Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Again, let's listen to Luke's language. Luke is a wordsmith. And he's choosing his words very carefully here to make a point for us. And so here he says, this guy I just introduced you to, he's still breathing his threats, but not only threats, he's breathing murder. Wherever he's going, he's trying to find people to drag them out and he's so zealous, he's going to the chief priest and he's asking permission to kind of push the boundaries a bit so that if anybody is found, he can bring them to be executed perhaps, but at the very least imprisoned. Last night as we were talking about Simon the sorcerer, we said his conversion was unusual. If if we were reading through the book of Acts for the first time, we wouldn't have seen that one coming, and yet here it is. And I think we could say the same thing about this guy, can't we? It sounds like that Luke is setting him up as kind of the antagonist of the story. Here is the one who is the bad guy. Here's the one who the people of God are having having to stand against. And yet here in chapter 9, we find the light shining and the voice from heaven and Saul falling to the ground and saying, what am I supposed to do? And after three days of darkness... The scales fall from his eyes and he arises and he's baptized and he joins that ragtag group of people that he was once persecuting and he becomes now one of the fiercest champions of Jesus Christ. We take all of that into consideration and we make our way a few chapters over in the book. And as we're looking here at what's going on in all of these conversion stories, we come to chapter 16. And this man who was once ravaging the church, this man who was once breathing threats and murder against the church, we find in verse 10 that he has a vision and there's a man. We're told he, he says to Saul, Paul now, you need to come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, verse 10 is saying, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The gospel can change lives. The gospel can take one who is an enemy of Jesus Christ and now make him one of the most effective workers in the kingdom. This evening... I want us to examine what Luke is telling us about two people who are converted. Now, our our angle on choice is going to be a little bit different tonight, and I'll get to that after a while. But, I think Luke has once again set two people in parallel. Not as we saw last night with Philip and Simon being somewhat uh, in in contrast to each other. Tonight we're going to see two people very, very different, but yet whose conversion stories are presented somewhat complementary of each other. And tucked in between these two conversion accounts is a really strange event that's going to take place. So let's talk about who Paul is going to meet. As we look on down into verse 11... He's, he's making his, his rounds, and we're given the places. We get to verse 12, and it says, From there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, we remained in this city some days. And so verse 13, Paul begins looking for people who are spiritually minded, and it says, On the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And so here they are, they're they're in this religious service. We might assume Jews here, since it's on the Sabbath day, that this is taking place. And this group of women is there, but we're going to kind of focus in now on one of these women. So Luke is going to record for us this handful of conversion accounts And this woman by the name of Lydia is going to be one of those. So as we read what's uh, going on with this conversion, we find out a couple of things about Lydia. We find out, first of all, that she was a seller of purple. Now we can do a little bit of guessing here. That as an entrepreneur, and especially an entrepreneur of this kind of fabric that's dyed with this rather expensive dye, she's probably a fairly well-off lady. But that's not what Luke's going to tell us about. In fact, he says that somewhat in passing to get to where he says she was a worshiper of God. Now, if indeed this group of women are Jews, we're going to decide then that Lydia is either a Jew herself or she's a proselyte. Whatever the case, what Luke is pointing out is that she is a very religious woman. She's a worshiper of God. And I think it's good for us maybe to pause here for a minute and to think about how she's being described with this if you go over to John chapter nine there's this really beautiful story about Jesus healing a blind man and they're trying to persecute him and make him turn on Jesus and he refuses to do that and he makes a statement in verse 31 and he says that we know that God does not listen to sinners But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Let's parallel those two things. So as Luke is telling us about Lydia... We know she's a woman. We know she's a seller of purple. But the point that he really wants us to see here is that she's a worshiper of God and that kind of matches up with the description John's giving us in the words of this formerly blind man who says, when you're a worshiper of God, God listens to you. And that helps us to understand what's going to happen in this conversion account. If we look down to verse 14 after all this is said near the end of it. It says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. There's been a lot made of that phrase, the Lord opened her heart. And I think quite a bit of error may be taught with that. So what do we need to gain from it? As as Luke is saying here that the Lord opened her heart, there's two things I want to point out to you that I know that we can know for certain. And one of those is God is involved in her conversion. We need to remember that. We're going to be back to that idea. God's involved in her conversion. But here's what we know from the standpoint of Lydia herself. That in God opening her heart, what that meant is that she was willing to accept the message that she was being given. It wasn't as though God was somehow zapping her in some kind of way and making her do something she had no intention of doing. Not at all. By the fact that God's opening her heart, it just simply means that she is now going to receive what Paul and his crew are teaching here, which reminds us of something he's going to write in Romans chapter 10 when he says faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. That's what she's doing here. And so we've got her introduced, and maybe we're all set now for this really elaborate story, maybe like Simon the sorcerer. We're about to get a lot of details. If we are, we may be a little disappointed in that, because her, her conversion is almost presented in a passive way. If you look on down to verse 15, it says, "...and after she was baptized." So, we don't even know her baptism here. We're just simply told that she was baptized. So, she easily accepted the truth of Paul's message. She's baptized and her whole household. Now, she's a rich lady. That may mean children, but it also likely means her attendants, her employees, whoever is a part of of her operation here. She's got such an influence on them and Paul has such an influence on her because Paul was influenced so by Christ that now this whole household has come to know Jesus Christ. And then I think it's really interesting that Paul says she urged us (laughs) saying if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord come to my house and stay and she prevailed upon us. It reminds you a bit of the day of Pentecost where nobody wants to go home. The people here in Jerusalem, they've come for the feast, but nobody wants to leave because the apostles are here and their fellow brethren are here. And so Lydia has got this this group of folks who know all about Jesus Christ and the apostle Paul is there and it says she's prevailing on them. She's urging them to stay and they do. But things are about to get really interesting here in the city of Philippi. So we leave Lydia, and we find that Paul is going to hang around. He's, he's still going about to preaching and teaching. And he comes across a very unusual young lady. And so as we look here in verse 16, it says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination." and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Now, by this time in the New Testament, someone who has a demon is not a surprise to us. We've read several of those accounts before. And so what we're going to find, though, is that Paul is going to have a really difficult time with this particular demon-possessed slave girl. And so as he's going, you can kind of imagine that, I don't know how long he stays, but several days, he's going back and forth, and maybe every morning as he's going out, this slave girl is setting her post there on the street, and her masters are collecting money uh, as as she's telling people's fortunes, and and she stops, and she says, "Let's, let's talk about who this guy is. Now you look at what most of our translations say here it says that she has a spirit of divination but if you look that up in the words that Luke would have recorded what it literally says is she has the spirit of python now what does all that mean well you got to know a little bit of mythology to get the, the whole impact of that And so maybe if you remember back to your world history class and going through all of this, you remember somebody who was called the Oracle at Delphi, or Delphi as the fancy people say it. And you you think about that this was a place that was all associated with gods and paganism and such. And it goes back to a story that supposedly there was once this serpent there at, at Delphi and the serpent was a fortune tellers kind of a serpent dragon being but what we find is that it was killed by apollos by Apollo. and after that time according to the myth this this serpent being would then inhabit various ones and it would allow them to be able to predict the future so These oracles at Delphi, if you wanted to know how your battle was going to go, you'd go and and the person in charge there would tell you what was happening. And so that's the language here that, that Luke is employing. Now, why would Luke use that language? Well, let's eliminate one thing first of all. Do we think Luke believed in all of this? Do we think that he believed that, yeah, here at Delphi there was a spirit and it could Take people over. No, we can get that one out right away. But isn't it interesting that he uses the language? And one thing that as we study our Bibles from Genesis 3 forward, we need to key into. Is anytime we've got talk of snakes or serpents or dragons or anything of that nature. We need to sit up and pay attention to that in light of the work of the devil. And I just suspect that the reason that Luke has used this language is to get us in that, that mindset in which he's saying, this is the serpent of old. This is the one who was way back, who is now trying to cause problems here, who's trying to keep people from being converted here, but he's going to do it in a very unusual way. So, we've got this spirit of python, who is inhabiting this girl, this spirit of divination, this demon... And so every day, as Paul is going by, the evil spirit is crying out. And if you notice here in the text, verse 17 says, She followed Paul and us crying out. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Again, no surprise to us. Because we've already seen that with Jesus back in Mark chapter 5 and verse 7. It says, in crying out with a loud voice, this demon-possessed man said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? That's an old way of referring to God. When you kind of trace it back, the very first person on whose lips we hear that designation for God is Melchizedek. So we're going way back in time. And so these beings that would have been ancient themselves, these created beings, they know who this is. They know who Jesus is. And they know who the Apostle Paul is and who he's working for now. And so this girl with this spirit, every time they're walking by, she's saying, look, these are the guys who are of the Most High God. These are the ones who are bringing the way of salvation. And so after this happens a few days, it says, I don't know what your translation says, mine says, Paul was greatly annoyed. That's a terrible translation. (laughs) Because when we think about being annoyed, we would use that if we get stuck at every red light driving down Highway 72, right? That would annoy us. It's a light word. The word that we've got here, we might have to drop back in English a little bit and pick up an old word, but the word vexed. Is a really good word. Because vexed means it's troubling you. It's something that's grieving you. Because here's Paul and he's trying to teach the ways of Jesus Christ, but in the process of doing that, you got this spirit of Python who, in telling people who he is, is in a sense turning people away from Jesus Christ. And so finally, Paul's had enough of it. And he turns to the girl. And he commands the spirit to come out of her. And it says he cast that spirit out. And so in casting that spirit out, it's showing that just like Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, in the name of Jesus, has power over the evil spirits. God has given him that ability to cast out. And so he demonstrated that power over evil. We might also note with that, that in casting it out, he also illustrated he would have no association with evil. Perhaps there would have been those who would have thought, you know what? This little girl's already got a follow. She's already got people who are paying to hear their fortune told. What if we just kind of work her into the, the act, so to speak? What if we make her kind of the center of attention, and when she gets a crowd over here, then we'll preach the message of salvation. The apostle Paul was having nothing to do with that. He knew who he was dealing with. Here's this serpent of old who's trying to destroy his efforts to bring people to Jesus Christ. And so in casting it out, he illustrated his refusal to associate with evil. And also in casting it out, he got himself thrown in jail. Her owners are very displeased. It says when they realize that their livelihood was gone. So they stir up the crowds and they get trumped up charges brought on him. And he's going to land himself in jail. Which is going to bring us now to the complimentary story with the conversion of Lydia, because here we're going to find another kind of opening taking place. Remember with Lydia, her heart was opened. And so now the Apostle Paul is in prison. He and Silas are there. And Luke tells us that they're singing and praising at midnight, and the other prisoners are are listening to them, and that's just an odd scene in and of itself, isn't it? (laughs) If you've ever been inside a prison, praying and singing at midnight usually isn't what's going on that's what's going on here and so what we find while all of this is happening there's another opening by god and what we're told is that all the prison doors swung open and all the shackles fell off the prisoners now was that opening for the apostle paul it was not at least in the sense of him escaping Because we know God could get someone out of prison without doing this. He did it for Peter, didn't he? Sent his angel, who punched Peter inside and said, get up. And the doors opened in front of him. No, God could have gotten Paul out. This is for somebody else who needed to wake up. There's a man in that prison who needed a wake up call. I always imagine... The jailer is being somewhat of an older, maybe grizzled kind of man. History tells us that a lot of times these kinds of jobs went to retired Roman soldiers. So maybe this is a man who has seen the He's He's been in battle and now he's too old for the battlefield and he's stationed here. He's a man that maybe we would never think would be interested in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, maybe kind of like the Apostle Paul who we might have thought never would be interested. And so here all of the doors are swinging open and the shackles are falling off and, and you can kind of imagine the jailer being jolted awake with this earthquake. Maybe he lights his, his torch and he's looking around and he sees this and, and he knows it's a death sentence. He, he knows what's going to happen. And so to kind of cut out the middleman. He takes his dagger and he says, I'll just take care of this so the Roman guard doesn't have to. And he's ready now to kill himself. And Paul says, wait, stop. We're all here. That's an amazing thing too, isn't it? Here's this man who is suicidal because he thinks his life is destroyed. Who comes and he falls down. Let's see what happens here. Verse 30, He brought them out and He said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He has had a life-altering event. And the first thing he thinks about is that these men are somebody different. These men are are not like anybody I've ever met. These are the men who can tell me the way of salvation. And whereas God opened Lydia's heart, here He opened the jail doors. But He also opened the jailer's heart, didn't He? Because just like Lydia, He's going to hear the message of salvation. And so He asked a salvation question... The Apostle Paul is going to give him a salvation answer. Look at verse 31. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So, once again, like Lydia, it's the main person plus all of those around them who are hearing this gospel message. And now, what we find is that Paul says, if you want to be saved, you got to believe. And let me tell you what you got to believe. And he preaches Jesus to him. And after preaching Jesus to him, note what happens in verse 33. It says, they took him the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. How was Lydia saved? She believed and was baptized. How was the jailer saved? He believed and he was baptized. How did Simon, how was he saved? He believed and he was baptized. What about the Sumerians? What about the Ethiopian eunuch? What about Saul himself? It's the same story for every one of them. And so here we have two conversions, two people who are very, very different, but the message of salvation brings them into the same family. So this week we've been talking about choices. We saw the choice that was made of the wise men versus the foolish king. We saw the choice that was made by Simon the sorcerer. And tonight I want to talk to you a little bit, not only about the means of salvation, but also our choice of taking that message of salvation. There may be some in the room tonight who are not Christians, and I'm really glad you're here. And I hope you really caught that message of salvation that we looked at. But I know that the vast majority of people in the room are Christians. And as we think about what we have and the choice that we once made, which I hope every one of us in 100% agreement believe it was the absolute best choice I ever made. What about when we have the opportunity to take that gospel to others? What choice are we going to make then? There's some really big, important lessons we see in this account of the book of Acts. And one of them that sounds so basic is one that perhaps we may forget the most and that's the fact that in evangelism God is always the one opening the door opening the heart opening the cell God is the one involved in that I've noticed with churches that I have worked with as well as a host of others that I've had associations It seems like it goes something like this. A church will begin to have collective guilt because they don't feel like they're going out and they're bringing souls to the Lord. And so maybe that's a sermon that's powerfully presented. Maybe it's elders who see that need, whatever. And so the church is told we need to change and there's an initial amount of excitement and it almost always goes like this. We get together and we decide this is going to be our best plan. We're going to go out. It takes various forms. We're, we're going to knock on doors. We're going to run ads in the paper. We're going to mail out flyers to the neighbors. All those things are, are great. They're fantastic. But I'm afraid what we forget to do is to pray about it. <laughs> to begin the whole thing by saying, Lord, we pray that you'll open doors for us. So that we can take the gospel to others. I hope you're doing that. And I'm, I feel confident many of you are. But for those of us maybe who struggle a bit with that. It's a really important thing for us to make a very steady part of our prayers. To say to the Lord. To ask the Lord. Will you please open doors and open hearts. So that I can let others know your gospel message. And it's an important thing for churches collectively to do because oftentimes the strength we're going to draw to be really good workers in the kingdom is going to come from seeing other people be really good workers in the kingdom. And so it's understanding then that God is the one who's opening the doors and thus my encouragement to all of us is is when we think about evangelism, we never diminish God's role. Because we're not always going to understand it. Would you have anticipated at all how the Philippian jailer was going to be converted? <laughs> Could you have predicted that at all? No. And I'm convinced that maybe it's not going to be that dramatic of a way now, but yet God's hand is still in it to make sure that people who need to hear His gospel and who are going to be receptive to it are placed in a situation with someone who can teach them that. And my guess is those of you who have been really involved in this kind of thing, you could tell us stories about. that. Of just very unusual circumstances where you didn't think there was any chance of of someone hearing the gospel, but it all works together. Can we always explain it? No. Can we most of the time explain it? Maybe not. But it's understanding that God is involved. And it's understanding that I've got to be ready when those doors are open. As far as I can tell, Paul had no heads up about Lydia. Lydia. He had no heads up about the Philippian jailer. But yet, as an apostle of the Lord, but even more than that, just simply as a Christian who wants to spread the Gospel message, when those opportunities presented themselves, he was ready. Now, he had had a heads up that there were people there who needed it. But for those specific events, Paul had prepared himself. So let me tell us this. That doesn't mean... That you've got to have this ability to answer any question that comes up. I, somehow I'm in charge of the questions that come in to the Gooch Lane website. And I tell you there's some doozies <laughs> that come in. And sometimes I just have to write back and say you've got to give me a little while on this. one. I've got to think through all of this. That's not what God's calling on us to do. There may be things that we don't know. But what we do need to know is why we're saved. And we need to understand that in such a way that we can take it to somebody else and say, this is exactly what you need. And if you can't explain what's on the north side of Nahum, it's okay. But if you can explain who Jesus Christ is and His love for mankind and His salvation, you're ready to go. But you've got to be ready for that. Let me also suggest to us that in this idea of preparation, That we need to make sure that we understand not every situation is going to be the same. And I think we see that in these two accounts. We've got here Lydia who just simply needed to have her knowledge completed. She's already a religious lady. She's there on the Sabbath. She's praying. She's in this worship service. She needed to know more though. And that's what the Apostle Paul is going to do. He's going to provide that in completing that understanding on how she's to be saved. And there may be a lot of occasions in our area of the world or well, that's exactly the case. There's a lot of folks who have a partial understanding of salvation. They, they've got a lot of it down. But simply need the rest of the story. And that's where you and I come in. And that requires gentleness. And it requires humility. I've recently been going through First and 2 Timothy again. And I'm just amazed how many times, especially in 1 Timothy, the apostle is telling Timothy to be gentle. When you speak, bring the message gently. Because there's folks who need the message, but they don't need somebody trying to ram it down their throat. They need someone who can gently bring it along. And let me just say to you, we may be in a time right now where that's the case. If you've been watching the news... You see that some of the, uh, the big traditional Protestant denominations have just been ripped apart. These, these social issues that are pressing in right now, leadership within these, these big organizations, they're taking paths that many of their people do not like and, and churches are leaving their fellowship and they're, they're becoming independent. It may just be that's an opening for us if we're prepared to take it. That people now who are beginning to see, maybe that leadership wasn't telling me the whole story here. We can open our Bibles and do that. We've got to be ready. We've got to be prepared. But let me assure all of us, we've got to do it with gentleness and we've got to do it with humility. Then you look at the jailer. And sometimes there are going to be people who are in life and death situations that are ready to hear that message. And we've got to be willing to present that message. There are things that happen in our lives that oftentimes are so unexpected that it's going to make us think about our relationship with God. That might be a near-death experience we go through. Maybe we go through a time of very severe health or maybe we're in a terrible auto accident where we should have been killed but we weren't. Well, that's happening daily. Or maybe it's a family member who gets very, very ill and there's another family member who starts thinking about his or her own mortality. And in those life and death situations, there's a golden opportunity for those who are ready and prepared to say, would you like to talk about it? We can just we can just talk. Once again, we see that the apostle Paul was ready. I imagine that's a little bit of a shock to Paul, don't you? <laughs> He's sitting there singing, and all of a sudden the, the ground starts rumbling, but the walls aren't caving in, but the doors swing open and his his shackles fall off. You notice Paul didn't say you need to give me a minute. He said, let me preach Jesus Christ to you. And you and I will have those opportunities. And it's in those opportunities, once again, we need gentleness. But on these occasions, we may need boldness. Because it may be we're going to say, well, it's a really stressful time. Maybe I should do it sometime later. We give ourselves a pass. No. We need to make sure that we're seizing those moments. Let me share just a couple of other thoughts with you. I think another important lesson of evangelism is that the gospel is for everyone. You think about people who would have been total opposites. Here is perhaps a refined entrepreneurial lady and a grizzled old guard who's been in a prison cell. They're now members of the same body. Very different. But yet their love for that message of salvation brought them to share this bond together. The gospel is not just for people who look like me. I don't know if this is the case with you or not, but have you ever gone to an extended family reunion? Not just with your siblings, but you know, second, third cousins, and everybody's coming in because everybody wants to see each other, right? You ever notice what happens at those? Everybody kind of huddles with their own family. We had one of those recently I looked around and in each corner I could see an uncle and aunt and their kids. You know, just totally separated. Because we're a lot more comfortable with our own kind, aren't we? People who are like us and think like us. But what we've got to realize is, is that one of the things we learn about Luke's examples that he gives us of salvation is that this is a wide-ranging group of people. Jews, Gentiles, an Ethiopian who's a proselyte, a rich lady, a poor uh, prison guard. All of these people are coming together. And it shows us that all can be one in Jesus Christ. The gospel is for people with tattoos. The gospel is for men who wear earrings. The Gospel is for people who are waving a rainbow flag marching down the streets. The Gospel is for people who are of every color and every thought. And I must never, ever, ever be to the point where I look at someone and say, no interest in the Gospel there. No. Somebody doesn't have to look like a graying old school teacher (laughs) to hear the gospel. No, what I've got to realize is that's for everybody. And that's what Luke was saying. And we come in and we change our sinful practices, but it doesn't mean we're going to change who we are as far as just what makes us a person because we're alike in that regard. We, We have that image of God within us. And I hope we never get to that point. Let me leave you with this final thought. We've got to make sure that in presenting this gospel message, we're not going to yoke ourselves with unrighteousness. It's really easy, and a lot of churches have done this in this zeal to save souls, to begin employing methods that are just not biblical. And so, what we realize with the Apostle Paul is that he might have gotten a following using this young lady. He said, I want to have nothing to do with that. Because he understood that salvation will never come from what is contrary to God and his gospel. It's not going to come from that corner. And so then, in our zeal to save souls, I cannot minimize the gospel's impact. If I begin saying things like, well, you know, let's kind of sneak the gospel in on people. Let's, let's. Throw big parties. Let's have fall festivals. Let's have all these different things. And while everybody's living it up and having fun, we'll slip them a tract. and, And maybe they'll see we're real people just like them. No, what saved in the first century is what saves now, and that's love for Jesus Christ. And if someone's not interested in Jesus, I don't know what we can do about that. So let's make sure that we are never sensationalizing things But as the Apostle Paul, what we're doing is always emphasizing Jesus Christ. That's who we want people to know. We want people to know what He's done. We want people to know that He can save just like He saved us. That's the message of salvation. And so here are these two people from very different worlds. Here are these two people that in polite society likely never had any associations with each other. But here are two people who are now saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And my hope is is that as you and I are given the opportunity to share the message of Jesus with others, we're going to make the choice to do it. We're going to be prepared. We're going to be praying about it. And whoever... Whatever they look like, if there's a remotest interest, we're going to be there to share that message of salvation. Thank you for your good attention tonight. So are you a Christian or not? That's what it boils down to, isn't it? Are you like Lydia? Lord's opened your heart. You've accepted the message. You've believed and you've been baptized. Maybe you're like the jailer. There's a life event. Woke you up. You, you couldn't wait to get to the waters of baptism. That's great. What if you're not a Christian? You've never made that decision. <clears throat> I think I can say with almost 100% certainty somebody's prayed for you. Somebody's prayed for your heart to be open. Somebody's prayed that you'll accept the gospel. Somebody's prayed that maybe there's somebody who can can meet you and, and talk with you. That's gone on. I feel confident. But salvation is yours to choose. No matter how much somebody prays, that's not going to save you. Salvation comes when you realize you're ready to become a part of Jesus Christ. And I sure hope that's the case tonight. That if you've never done that, that maybe if you were here last night and you heard about the jailer, tonight, so we talked about Saul just briefly, but primarily Lydia and uh, the jailer here, the sorcerer last night, the jailer tonight. Maybe you've realized what you need to do. That who saved them is who will save you. And I hope you'll make that decision. And so once again, I'll tell you, if you don't want to do it in front of all these people, that's okay. (laughs) That's not a prerequisite. The important thing is God's there and you're there. And so I hope you'll not let anything stand in your way of that. So that you can leave this building tonight like these people, knowing that your salvation in Jesus Christ is secure. If you're ready to make that commitment to Him tonight, don't delay. You can come now as we stand and sing together.